Well, there were enough notes on the clip, I think, to last for three months <laughs> worth of Dharma talks. There was quite a range of questions. Um, so I'll just read through some of them. And I grouped a few together that seemed to be around similar themes. Is there any inherent benefit of moving very slow and noting with precision every mind moment, as opposed to just a bright wakefulness that is not so specific, where one moves at normal speed, so to speak, but is aware of what's happening in a general way? Would you say the possibility for insight is in the slower mind moment to moment, slower mind moment to mind moment or not? And then how to cultivate deeper investigation into things without becoming um, <laughs> without becoming just more thinking uh, around anatta and anicca. So it really has to do, both these questions have to do with effort and investigation and the benefit of moving very slowly and noting precisely as opposed to a more general kind of awareness. If you're driving along the road in a car and quite attentive to what you see, you'll notice the different things that pass by on a certain level of perception. You'll be present, you won't be wandering, and you'll see at a certain level. If you're riding a bicycle along the same road, you'll begin to see more detail. It'll be the same scene, but you'll see more detail about what's really there. If you're walking slowly, or even walking as opposed to riding on a bike, uh, you'll see even more. This is the advantage of moving slowly. It's not so much that you're less present if you're, if you're moving at a more normal speed. You just won't uh, see as much. I mean, a simple example of this, you know, is in terms of the practice. Suppose you're, you know, you're standing from sitting position or you're reaching for something. You could stand and know that movement and really feel it. You're not wandering, you're not lost, you're present. Or you could stand and really notice with quite a sharp awareness the different sensations in that standing movement. One, you're just aware of the movement, and in the other, you're aware of the distinct sensations. Through slowing down and precise attention, It's as if you begin to enter another world. It's it's like we begin to enter... I don't know the the right phrase exactly. Like the microscopic world of attention. And this is particularly helpful to have a deeper understanding of anatta or selflessness. Because even as we're aware of the movement... 
we could be present for that, but still there might well be a sense of identification with I'm standing. That sense of I could easily be there. When we're on the level of moment-to-moment sensation, very rarely would we think I'm pressure. It's very unlikely that we identify with these different moments of distinct sensation. So we begin to see the selfless nature of what's really going on. So all of this is by way of encouragement, you know, to slow down and really be quite precise. It's not that you have to note or label every sensation that you feel. You will always notice more than you note. And so if you're using the noting, and if you find it helpful, just note the general activity, but see how much can be noticed within that. The caution in this is that you don't create an idea in your mind or an ideal, well, I should be moving, you know, super slowly, creeping along all the time, and you find yourself getting tight and tense trying to do it. That's not the point. You really want to see if you can settle back into it rather than holding yourself back. And also know at times, there are times when faster movement is appropriate. Just depending on the level of concentration of energy, you know, you could be moving very slowly and just getting really tight and the mind restless. So pay attention to the quality of your awareness, but know that this slow movement and careful attention is worth cultivating. So in your own way and in your own time, begin to develop that. A lot gets revealed. I awake at at 4.30 and go to bed at 10. The last hour and a half, um, there's regularly drowsiness and dullness are very predominant. There seems very little I can do to brighten the mind at this time. So almost every night from 8.30, I sit and walk and half asleep, noting drowsiness. I'm failing to see what use it is to be awake to this state every night. What is the value of this over just going to bed? (laughs) It's trying to just be awake enough. A related subject, what's your view on caffeine? I think it is really helpful to keep going, even if one is quite sleepy. Um, again, it shouldn't be—it shouldn't be to the point of uh, not getting enough sleep at night, so you wake up tired. But if if you're going to sleep at night and you wake up and you're refreshed, you're energized, but then by the end of the evening you're really beginning to fade. You could note fading, fading, fading. (laughs) I'll just tell you one experience I had. It was on the other end. Uh, Sort of in the early days of my practice, I was, uh, this was in India with Goenkaji, one of my teachers. And again, we used to get up at four in the morning and have a two-hour sitting. 
before breakfast. Um, and in those days, it was really hard for me to sit cross-legged. So I would be very motivated to get up quickly so I could get some wall space. You know, so I'd rush into the hall and get my spot against the wall. And within 15 minutes, I would be gone. You know, I would just be asleep. And this happened day after day after day. And I had the same question come to my mind. What's the point of this? And I might as well just sleep and get up and be refreshed. But I felt motivated to at least continue trying. And it was amazing because one day, and I don't remember how long it took, but it was a while, one day I went into the hall, I sat down, and I was totally awake. And that was really a turning point. Sleepiness in the early morning was never a problem again. If I had not persevered through the difficult time, I wouldn't have gotten to that point of actually working through it. So we can't always judge the value of something by the ease or the pleasantness of the experience in the moment, because even when we think nothing's happening, just that quality of effort, of resoluteness, of determination, of intentionality, there are forces building. You know, we keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, and at a certain point, it's like the fruit of that uh, endeavor blossoms in us, and there's more energy and more wakefulness. So I'd, I'd really be encouraging for that. Um, as far as caffeine, um, I think this is a very individual matter. You know, I, I don't think there's anything morally reprehensible about it, <laughs> as maybe some people do. <laughs> but you have to know your own body, you know, and also the effect in your mind. Some people it just wires too much and maybe creates a lot of restlessness or disturbance, may not be good for you. Other people, it's just enough of a, an uplift, maybe to carry you through really uh, drowsy times. Please explain how to positively, positively manage the energies rele- released by the Vipassana romance. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Please say a little more around desire for an object. You said it was not the object itself that was wanted, but the pleasant feeling. (laughs) I find it hard to think that I also don't want the object. clearly related. (laughs) One reflection uh, you can make which might really reveal uh, that it's the pleasant feeling which is what we're predominantly going after uh, is how often we have desire for an object you know and we get it 
And after often a very short time, it ceases to be of great interest to us. And this is this is the uh, sort of the driving force of our culture. Right? It's like our society is banking on this. You know that we keep losing interest, so go for something else. We lose interest, go for something else, and we keep on this this treadmill of desire and gratification, and then more desire. It's not the object itself that actually is bringing us much satisfaction. Because if it were, as long as we had the object, that satisfaction would remain. The object is not changing in a, uh, you know, in a pragmatic way for us. The object may be the same, but our feeling about it changes quite quickly. Precisely because the nature of these feelings, both pleasant and unpleasant, are changing very rapidly. And as soon as we stop having a pleasant feeling associated with the object, the object is not of great interest. And we can see that throughout our lives about so many things, about possessions or situations, sometimes with people. So it's just paying attention you know, to in the experience of something pleasant, when you're having something pleasant, you know, maybe the next time you have a meal. Generally, generally mealtime is the big pleasure hit of the day. And it is. It's a, it's, it's a pleasant experience. Just see if you can pay careful enough attention to see really what's going on. What is it that the mind is enjoying? You know, is it the texture on the tongue? Is it a particular moment of taste? Is it you know, the eggplant parmesan or whatever is being served? What is it that's causing the enjoyment? You know, look very carefully at that. It's not the eggplant. <laughs> it's not. There's some experience of pleasantness that we get in that activity, and that's what we're going for. But this takes, as I said in the beginning, in response to the first question, this takes a very precise awareness. And we really have to be able to distinguish uh, in an experience uh, what is the object, what is the feeling that's associated with it, what is our reaction to the feeling. Now, you have to be looking very, very carefully. And in this respect, the energy that most serves the practice, you know, that is most onward leading, is the quality of interest. If you're interested in understanding, the whole Dharma will unfold. Because interest brings attention, it brings mindfulness, it brings concentration, it brings understanding, all from being interested. 
And we need this quality. Otherwise, if we don't have this interest, basically we stay a prisoner of our conditioning. We just play out all the deeply conditioned habit patterns of our lives. It's as if we're asleep. In a way, we are asleep. We don't have this interest and attentiveness that comes from it. Well, the same thing in this question with the Vipassana romance. It's a good question because here in the silence and hopefully in the non-interactiveness, we can really see it very clearly, this force of wanting, this force of desire, this force of attraction, how it's working in us. Because this is what's pulling us in our lives, you know, throughout our lives. One place to apply this interest and careful investigation (coughs) with respect to something like a Vipassana romance is to be very mindful in the first moment of seeing, whether it's actually seeing the person that's evoking all these feelings or seeing it in the mind, the image in the mind. If we're not mindful at that first moment of seeing, then it's as if our attention gets pulled out through the eye door, either externally or internally. And before we know, we create a whole story around the pleasant feeling that we're getting from seeing. Now, we see this person, and there's a kind of excitement. And from the excitement comes all kinds of Bells. <laughs> it will be very different if you can really be mindful in that moment of seeing so that you're not caught, you're not caught up by the pleasant feeling. There's one teaching of the Buddha which is quite some way, it's the deepest expression of his understanding and will be talked about more, the law of dependent origination, how because of one thing, something else arises. Because of this, next thing arises. Just a, a very brief part of this teaching is how contact with an object, in this case seeing, gives rise to feeling right in the moment of contact there is a feeling of it being pleasant. So those two come right together. But then the feeling leads to wanting, leads to desire, if we're not mindful. And that's the chain, the links that we go through again and again and again. The thought of a person comes, the image of a person comes, you see the person right there in the moment. Seeing, seeing, seeing. Notice the pleasantness. Pleasant, pleasant. If you're mindful, you see you're at rest in that rather than being pulled out. Sort of a less investigative approach, but one that the Buddha also recommended. He talked a lot about (coughs) 
guarding the sense doors. You know, when you see that you get lost again and again and again in a particular arena, and you're not being mindful, you don't need to play with fire so much. You know, when you see you get burned again and again and again, you learn, ah, oh, you know, this is this is too dangerous now. And I don't have enough mindfulness to deal with this. So you guard the sense doors. Why is doubt considered a hindrance? Didn't the Buddha say that we, should, we shouldn't believe the teachings until we've experienced them fully for ourselves? It sounds like he's instructing us to doubt. In my life, I've encountered teachers and teachings that I should have doubted much sooner. I think one of the confusion here has to do with different ways we use the word doubt in English, but it really means different things. In the context of the question, it really means wise consideration. You know, and the Buddha did recommend this. That it's not a question of believing blindly. That with anything, but particularly in a spiritual path, we do want to consider wisely. And the Buddha gave a very, very pragmatic measure for this wise consideration. He said, does a teaching, does a practice conduce to the weakening of greed and hatred and delusion. So we have to see in our own minds, by doing something, are we actually weakening these forces in the mind? Or is it strengthening? Are we just getting more caught in desire, more caught in greed and anger and ill will in forgetfulness? He said to cultivate the one and abandon the other. So we need to consider wisely The doubt that is the hindrance is not wise consideration. The doubt that's the hindrance is the state of indecisiveness. It's perplexity. Should I do this? Should I do this? Endlessly, endlessly thinking about it and not actually applying oneself so that we can see for ourselves whether it leads to wholesome states or unwholesome states. If we simply stay back and think and try to think it out before tasting it, before doing it, after some initial assessment, you know, something seems good, so then we try it. It's our experience that allows us to assess properly. But the doubt that's the hindrance is just this thinking mind which never comes to resolution. Why doesn't it come to resolution? Because our mind is kept on the level of thought rather than on the level of experience. We're not actually tasting the experience, so we don't know the quality of it. Sharon tells a wonderful story about doubt, which, which typifies the hindrance. It's 
sort of in her early days of practice, she was uh, studying both with Vipassana teachers and also with a Tibetan teacher. And thinking about which practice she should do drove her crazy. And so all the time she was doing Vipassana, she was thinking, well, maybe I should do Tibetan practice. When she was doing Tibetan practice, maybe I should do Vipassana. And meanwhile, she was doing neither. And it got worse because she would then query, you know, the Vipassana teacher about Tibetan practice. And he didn't know anything about it. (laughs) And then she would ask the Tibetan teacher about Vipassana practice, which they didn't know anything about. So not only wasn't she doing the practice, she wasn't learning anything. (laughs) You know, from these teachers, because she was asking them about things they didn't know about. (laughs) This, This is exactly the nature of doubt. You know, it's just this endless indecision and perplexity until finally she realized, just do one, you know, and experience it and see. The great seductive power of doubt, and this is something to, you know, observe carefully in your experience, doubt often comes masquerading as wisdom. It does. You know, when we have these doubting questions, we think we're really exercising our wisdom. But we're not at all. It's just the thinking mind. And there are many realms of experience and almost all of the spiritual domain, spiritual path, which is beyond the realm of thought. Thought will never lead us there. We could speak with tremendous erudition about the music of Mozart. And we could speak for hours and compare it to Beethoven. But if we don't listen to Mozart, what is it rooted in? What is it grounded in? It's, just, it's on a level that in some way can never understand the music. It's exactly the same way in practice. We can talk about it and think about it endlessly. But really that's an expression of this skeptical doubt. And it's keeping us from actually dropping into our experience. So it's just, it's careful to understand the difference between a wise assessment and this perplexity of mind or indecisiveness of mind. Question on the fluctuation of mind. Last week I thought I'd, I settled into the practice a number of downright good sitting periods. Body still, mind quiet, breath steady. Then two days ago, as if something broke loose, many night dreams occurred. During walking and sitting, thoughts flooded the mind, couldn't note well, managed only momentary anchoring on the breath, hearing, body sensations. The experience, I've experienced this sort of fluctuation in past retreat. The mind seems to have a life of its own. What to do? Should I just let the thoughts run through, it, run through its course? Is it okay to do mantra to calm down? Can you shed some light on this in terms of Zen story of the ox herding pictures? 
And could you speak about the purification aspect of the practice? Could you describe the path to enlightenment or awakening in the most helpful way for us to view it with respect to the practice? All of these are about really the purification process. You know, most of you are quite experienced meditators, so you know very well that the spiritual path is not like that. It's not that we start here and every successive sitting and walking gets clearer and brighter and happier <laughs> until we're fully enlightened. <laughs> it's just not like that. It's up and down and up and down and up and down, but the slope of the curve is going up. Another image that I had for the unfolding of practice, quite a number of years ago I was on uh, Kauai and we were hiking in along the, the Nepali coast. And it's a beautiful, it's an 11 mile walk. And you're up on top of the cliffs, it's all along the ocean. And beautiful view of you know, the island and the ocean. Then you walk down and you're in you know, the thick, thick forest, jungle, and then up again and down. And from one perspective, every time you're down, you know, and it's dark and it's humid and mosquitoes and all of that, you think, what happened? What happened to the expansiveness, the view, you know, the light? But actually, through all the ups and downs, we were always getting closer to the destination. So it goes like this and this and this, but something is happening. And what's happening is the purification process. Very often, we go along, and at first there's a lot of wandering, a lot of, a lot of thing, a lot of restlessness. Finally, the mind gets a little peaceful, a little quiet, and we say, yeah, I have it. <laughs> that thought, you will have 10,000 times. <laughs> I got it. And then what often happens is in the calm, in the peace, it's almost like a button is pressed in the mind. And there's this flood of thoughts or images or memories. And sometimes people start remembering things from way back, or very trivial things, very insignificant things that we didn't even know were still in the memory but it comes up, and if we can just sit and make space for it to come up, not indulging it, but also not getting tight behind it, what happens is that there is a real clearing out of the mind. And I've experienced this a lot over the years. And in some way, I think that's why the process is called, or the practice is about enlightenment, because it really does lighten the mind. It's like, we re-experience so many of the impressions that have been stored. Sometimes very traumatic ones, sometimes very simple or trivial ones. But it's all stored. You know, in some way, as we sit and make space for it, it starts to come up. If we can see it and be with it and just let it go, it's like up and out and up and out and up and out. And there's a real letting go process that's happening. The mind really does feel lighter. You can experience that in the body also. You know, when, when people come to a retreat, very often 
although not always noticed, uh, the body is carrying a lot of tension from the busyness of the world. And a good part of the practice is first getting in touch with it, which is why people often feel or go through periods of real discomfort and pain. A lot of it has to do with just becoming aware of the tension that we're holding, often very unknowingly. It's only through the awareness of it, making the space for it, we begin to let go of it. The mind gets lighter, the body gets lighter. So this is one aspect of the purification process. The key is balance. Now, sometimes what's coming up gets so interesting that we get seduced into these long thought forms. So we just have to be careful. Find the balance between allowing it but not getting lost in it. There's another aspect of the purification process. And that has to do with some other questions that uh, were also asked about the nature of insight. What are the insights that happen in practice? I think one of the most important insights which you have all had already. You may not have recognized it, but you have all had it. Is the insight of how much the mind wanders. So anybody who hasn't had that one yet? <laughs> That's the first thing to hit us. You know, how much we're lost in thought. This is really important to see. Most people don't know this. And when we see it, it really becomes a motivation, a strong motivating force to actually wake up, to be more mindful, to put in the necessary effort and practice to be awake in our lives, rather than just to be so continuously carried away. It's really interesting, you know, many of us share a a common psychological pattern which doesn't, uh, really doesn't help us in meditation. And it has to do with the pattern of self-judgment. And it happens a lot when we realize that we've been lost. Very often people will respond to that awareness with a kind of, there I go again, lost again. You know, this is the hundredth time in this sitting that my mind has wandered. Rather than, in the moment of knowing we're lost, taking delight in the fact that we woke up to it. Oh, I remember it again. <laughs> yeah. Each moment of waking up to the fact of what's happening is a moment of purification. We're purifying the mind of greed, hatred, delusion. And so appreciate in every moment of coming back, of being present, there is something very profound happening in this stream of consciousness. We are weakening 
the forces of the defilement of the Kalaisas. Every moment of mindfulness is strengthening the forces of enlightenment. There's a sort of a new age biologist who writes some very interesting things. His name is Rupert Sheldrake. And he has this theory called morphic resonance. And I don't understand really a lot about this, but the basic idea is that once something happens in nature, it's easier and more likely for it to happen again. Right? And he gives many examples of this. Once something happens the first time, from that point, it makes it easier for it to, to occur again. Well, that's the same thing with our practice. Every moment of mindfulness, of attentiveness, makes it easier for that moment to arise again. So delight in it, you know, in those moments when we awaken. You suggest that I donate the merit of my practice for the happiness and liberation of all beings. But isn't that the path of a bodhisattva? What if I don't want to be a bodhisattva? (laughs) But prefer to get off the wheel of birth, death, and rebirth as soon as I can. Do I still donate my merit to all beings? That's a good question. I, I appreciated that one. whatever one's aspirations. And from down here, it may look that they're, it may look to be quite different. My guess is that at another perspective, from another perspective, they're not so different. But leaving that till we get to that other perspective, I think whatever our aspirations, whether we have the aspiration to become a Buddha or aspiration to free ourselves from the cycle of birth and death as soon as possible, the dedication of merit is always helpful. What keeps us bound to the wheel? What keeps us from being Buddha? No, it's the same thing. It's this illusion or ignorance of a separate self, of an I. That is the, that is the basic knot you know, in the center of all of this. And so every practice, every skillful means that helps to untie that knot of ego, of self. Or another way of saying it would be every skillful means which helps us see through the illusion of self and ego furthers us towards our aspiration. The dedication of merit at the end is one way. It's one method of doing this. It's letting go of self-concern for that moment and just opening. It's it's an act of generosity. 
And you don't particularly have to worry that you know, you'll give all your merit away because actually the dedication of merit just accrues more merit. <laughs> so this is a no-lose, no-lose situation. I think that's a very important point, though, and, you know, during the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking a lot about it. Just to pay attention through the course of a day, you know, at all those moments where there's this contraction of the sense of I, and it comes through it comes through identification with something an identification with a thought or an emotion or a feeling or a reaction or a judgment something and so whenever we feel this contraction it could even be identification with a spiritual aspiration. The spiritual aspiration itself is good, you know, and it's what leads us onwards. But if it's all centered around an I and a self, it's counterproductive. Because the real wisdom, the real freedom, the real liberation is to see that There is no one home. We'll be talking a lot about this. (laughs) This is a a big one. What is access concentration? What values have the jhanas for the development of insight? Uh, Regarding the first question this morning about metta and concentrating on words, image of person and feeling, Aren't the first two going to drop away when one enters access concentration? Uh, also, is metta as taught here for concentration and tending for entering into jhanas? Um, access concentration is that level of the mind when the mind is staying more or less rhythmically on the object, whether it's a single object, like in metta or the breath, or in a more choiceless way, but there's a, there's a strong enough momentum so that there's an ease in awareness. There's not so much the struggle. And one image which I've used to describe this, you know, if you imagine an arch and just balancing yourself right on top of the arch, and sliding down one side and then sliding down the other, and you have to make this big effort to climb back to the top. You climb back up and then you slide down again, climb back up. So it's, it's quite effortful. But at a certain point, the arch inverts and becomes a trough. So then you're just resting in the bottom of the trough, and periodically you get pulled out from that place of balance, but quite easily the mind falls back that place of rest. You pull that again and it falls back. So this is what happens 
when the mind reaches this level of access concentration. It comes about through continuity of attention. And this, this is what develops the mind to this place of strength, which is why there is much encouragement you know, to really practice in that way. The very uh, common example used for things of this sort, but it's very apt here, um, you know, is trying to boil some water the stove. If you te- keep taking the pot off, takes a long time to boil, you know, if ever. If you just keep it on and let it stay on, it comes to a boil quickly. You want to practice in this way. So there's a real continuity of awareness. If you, know, you spend a lot of time just spacing around during the day, so you make good effort and you really build up a certain kind of momentum, and, psh, you know, and then the, fi- the heat is lost. And then you, you do it again, and the heat is lost. Um, so continuity is really important. And as we said in the beginning, you know, the slowing down can be a big help. With all of this, though, it has to be done from a place of balance, not from a place of straining, striving, struggle, forcing, greed. You know, just from a place of ease being settled back in your body, it can be done very gracefully. You know, where you're not rushing, you're not hurrying through things, you're really there feeling it, but very lightly. And so monitor the quality of your awareness. If it's getting too tight, too tense, you need to relax a bit. But the relaxing doesn't mean forgetting. It just means loosening up the effort a bit. The metta practice, when it's taught here, um, you know, as a concentration practice, is for the purpose of developing jhana, which is just a deeper, almost steady kind of concentration. In the access concentration, the words and the images don't fall away in the metta. You can, you can still be saying them. I sometimes see interconnection, interbeing, as purely blissful, connecting with all of life, with stars, oceans, mountains, lions, people, and so on. It seems beautiful and complete. When I wake, I see more suffering than bliss. Life feeds on life, in oceans, forests, etc. And in the human sphere also, relationships are often predatory. I sometimes wonder if I truly want to experience a connectedness to all, or if I'd rather fool myself with an idealized concept of interconnection and bliss. It seems too easy to opt out for an easy grace, a peak meditation experience that may have little to do with life as it is. I have seen war as a Vietnam medic. I have seen all kinds of suffering in myself and others, and I'm afraid of suffering. In short, how can this practice deepen our compassion 
deepen our willingness to embrace all things? How can we be peace in a world where there is no easy grace? This next question is somewhat related. What recommendations or comments do you have to break the vicious cycle of aversion and restlessness? How can we open up to aversion when it is so uncomfortable? Now, these questions really are about our ability to open to suffering and to feel suffering and how that openness becomes the basis for compassion. Now, one of the beautiful things in the, the, the profound insights that come in meditation is we see so clearly and so intimately what our conditioned responses are to suffering, to pain. And it doesn't have to be, you know, extreme situations like happened in Vietnam or many other places, we can see it in how we're relating to a pain in the knee or a pain in the back. Something very simple. You know, and just to notice the degree to which we actually can open to it and be with it and the degree to which we tense you know, or contract or have an agenda to get rid of it. All the many subtle ways, you know, we're relating to it that actually is not connected to it just as it is. How through some reaction of our mind, we're separating ourselves. This is a common condition. This This is not, you know, anyone's individual problem. This is how we've been conditioned and it's not easy to open to the suffering that's there. Whether it's very simple suffering in the body or, or you know, more intense kinds. But to the degree that we can open, even in very little ways at first, to the degree that we can actually allow ourselves to feel pain without trying to push it away and without reaction, to that degree we begin to experience the possibility of compassion in the face of suffering. I'm going to speak a lot more about compassion because in some way it's at the heart of this whole practice. But it's very much connected also to what we were speaking about before in terms of selflessness. Because as long as there's a strong sense of self, of I, the magnitude of the suffering that exists is overwhelming. 
No, how could I possibly, how could I possibly open to the suffering that exists in this world? Can't. Only emptiness is big enough to accommodate, to open to all the suffering. Now, when we give up or see through or let go of this illusion of self, of I, that makes possible the opening to, the relating to, the interconnectedness with all the suffering that exists. Because it's not all on the shoulders of a self. It's all arising in emptiness. This is a very profound, it's a very profound matter. Um, It's said that, the Buddha talked about this, he said that the reason enlightenment goes in stages, that it's a progressive path, that very few people sort of get fully enlightened at one shot, um, is precisely because About this, of our inability to open to the magnitude of suffering all at once. You know, and so it's this gradual process of letting go of the sense of self. And as we do that, we're more and more open to the, to the feeling of pain, the feeling of suffering. And this process just expands until finally there are no limits, there are no boundaries. And it's out of that no boundary, no separation, that there really can be a very deep compassion. I think it's important to bring this from a kind of theoretical or emotional level very directly into your experience with whatever painful experience arises. Because right there you can see it. Pain arises in one form or another. It's a physical pain, it's a mental pain. Right there, in that moment, how is the mind with it? Now just look, not not with a judgment, not just take an interest. Is there openness to it? Is there reaction to it? Is there defensiveness? Is there resistance? Is there contraction? Is there wallowing in it? Whatever. Just take a look. Question about self-judgment. I suspect self-judgment has been at the root of my most stuck and emotionally difficult times. You mentioned on the subject of acceptance that we might watch for a sense of struggle as an indicator that we're in denial about something. Is there some indicator I can watch or feel for which might tip me off to self-judgment, especially in its subtler forms. Also, is there anything to do other than notice it? Will I become less judgmental over time simply by noticing when I'm being judgmental? I think through the process, 
just the natural process of the practice and mindfulness, we become much more aware of all the judgments, self-judgments and judgments of others. This is a very prevalent tendency. In terms of the kalesas or the defilements that are uprooted at different stages, this one, in the Buddhist terminology, it's called conceit. And, and what conceit means in this context is just this comparing mind, comparing oneself with others. And I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm equal to. And it's out of this comparing that the judgment comes. That's not uprooted, that's not eliminated until the final stage of enlightenment. Even after desire and aversion are uprooted. There's, when there's no more desire, no more ill will, this judging mind is still going on. <laughs> so, it's important that we make friends with it. <laughs> there are a few very, um, a couple of very simple techniques which can transform your relationship to it. Because there's one very simple attitude shift that needs to take place, and when it does, it's no longer a problem. What I'd suggest is you start counting the judgments. (laughs) Just count through the day. Judgment one, judgment two, judgment three, judgment (laughs) 10,000. And what's going to happen is exactly what happened here. At a certain point, whatever the number may be, we start smiling. It just... The ridiculousness of that mindset becomes so apparent to us after we've noticed it for the 10,000th time. As soon as we're able to smile at it, it has lost its power. The fact that it's arising is not a problem. It's not a problem at all. It's just another thought passing through the mind. The problem is that we either believe it or we condemn it. We either get lost in the judgment about ourselves and others and believe what it's saying, or we condemn it saying, shouldn't be judging, which of course is just another judgment. In the moment that we can smile at it, it has lost all of its power. It doesn't matter. Another technique I found, and all of this just came from watching my own mind. I remember one time I was sitting in the dining room here. I was on retreat. And I watched my mind have a comment about every single person that walked through the line. (laughs) Every person. It was like, they were walking too fast, they were walking too slow. They took too much food, they didn't take enough food. They were (laughs) comment about what they were wearing, about... It was endless. That's, that's when I started this counting game. Another little technique which I used, I just tacked on to every judgment the statement, the sky is blue. That person's a jerk. The sky is blue. <laughs> because if the thought the sky is blue comes through, there's no reaction. It's just, it's just a neutral thought. You know, the sky is blue, no problem. That person is a jerk is exactly the same as the sky is blue. It's just words in the mind. If we don't believe it and we don't condemn it, it's not a problem. This is very simple. 
You know, you don't have to wait another month to free yourself from sort of the, the dukkha, the suffering of the judging mind. It's not that it's going to stop. It's just that the attitude towards it, right now, it can just shift. Next time it comes, count, or the sky is blue, till you get to the point where you're smiling. Somebody once in an interview came, and they had a great line, which has come back to me in practice a lot. They came, and they were reporting on their experience, and they said, you know, the mind has no pride. (laughs) It's true. And the mind will... Anything. (laughs) Absolutely anything. But the great saving grace is that it's all empty. It's all... Nothing has any substance at all. The only power that thoughts or images or emotions or whatever, the only power that these things have is the power that we give them. If we can be settling back and just resting in the awareness of what's arising, let everything wash through. The content is irrelevant. But we are such content junkies. You know, we just get seduced by the story of the emotion or the content of the thought. And we really, that's, that's how we stay ensnared in our life. Now, this, this retreat, it's such a great gift you know, to be able to do this, to just learn how to sit back. It's not pushing anything away. It's being totally open, totally allowing, but with awareness, with presence of mind, so that we don't get ensnared. The content of thoughts doesn't matter. Let it all come and go. Whatever emotion comes up, Just let it come and go. Let it wash through. Feel what it is. And that way we really are practicing, you know, moment to moment, this great quality of...